UCB Life Issues with Paul Hammond. And as always, a very warm welcome to this week's Life Issues. Now, the summer of 1981 saw Maggie firmly settled in number 10. The gang of four were making a break for it from the Labour Party to form the SDP. The story of Eric Liddell in Chariots of Fire was showing that Christian conviction could be a positive thing. A pint of beer cost 51p, and Shakin' Stevens had the longest-running number one of the summer with Green Door. How that pushed the specials off the top spot is still a mystery to me. And a young trainee minister was sent back to his home church for work experience. And on the very first day, I learned what has been a very important lesson that 40 years later sits as clear as ever, even if I'm honest enough to say I haven't always applied it. Because on that first day, that first morning, that first session with my minister that summer, in a moment of brutal honesty, he admitted that he struggled to pray and often didn't pray. Even though he was telling me that it was essential in the life of every Christian and every Christian leader, he himself, different story. I couldn't believe it. How could someone so full of God's word, such a powerful evangelist, such a compassionate pastor, acknowledge that even he struggled to pray? From that seed has grown over the years an awareness that the vast majority of people struggle with prayer. We struggle with our worthiness to pray. We struggle to speak out the words. We struggle to see the point or to find the words or to stop our minds from wandering. And even though we know that the best answers to our every need are found not through thrashing through life, but by being still and hearing and trusting in our Father who art in heaven. So many times in life I acknowledge that I have prayed as a last resort rather than a first port of call. Why is it that so often the discipline of prayer eludes us and our good intentions and well-meant commitments to launch out into the deep of a life built on and filled with prayer? Founder, on the rocks of distraction and discouragement and even despair. Well, someone who may have an opinion in this is Amy Boucher-Pie, who is an author, a speaker, retreat leader, spiritual director, and someone who has recently fixed her gaze on the reality, the beauty and the joy of prayer. She is, I'm pleased to say, an old friend of the programme, and it's great to welcome her back. Find her on social media and at amyboucherpie.com. So why do we struggle, Amy? Is it just spiritual laziness that keeps us from the rich tapestry of an active prayer life? Well, I think you've hit on it partly already. Distraction, discouragement, a whole host of reasons that we don't pray. We don't think we're doing it right. We think there's a right way to pray, a wrong way to pray. Um, maybe God is saying no, and we don't like that answer, so we think that he's being silent. I think there's a whole bunch of reasons why we don't pray, but when we do pray, 
God runs towards us and meets us with open arms and he embraces us and he affirms us and he does amazing things. So, it, it, you know, I just really with this book, I'm trying to equip people to pray in different ways, perhaps to try out new ways, to have a sense of fun and playfulness and not to think that they're getting it wrong. Yes, because there is a phenomenal and you touch on it there straight away. There's a phenomenal insecurity for most people about praying we always assume somebody else's prayers will be more efficacious we assume that somebody else's prayers will be more eloquent we assume that somebody else's prayers will actually connect with the spiritual realm and hear the power and the truth of the spirit far more somebody else is always going to do it better so very often we want other people to pray for us and yet when we pray and i love the phrase you use there god runs towards us we need to wake up to this gift that we've been given we really do and as you were saying that it made me think about when jesus was with the little children he loved the little children and why do we think that god our father wouldn't hear our prayers however paltry they are from our point of view he doesn't have this he's not this you know divine judge up there who's judging okay yes Paul gets a 10 for that one. And, oh, Amy, she only gets a four for that one. She wasn't very eloquent. No, that's not what a good parent does. He just wants us to express ourselves to him. So what is it about prayer? And and obviously, as you mentioned, you have a, a book out. It's called Seven Ways to Pray. It's published by our friends at SPCK. And you can find details of it at Amy's website, amyboucherpie.com. Boucher is spelled B-O-U-C-H-E-R, by the way. And pie has got a Y in the middle of it. So amyboucherpie.com is the website. What is it, as you have been once again exploring prayer that excites you about prayer? Oh, well, what excites me is the relationship that I have with God through it and how God has changed me so much over over the years. I talk about in my 20s how the Bible really came alive, and I felt like God's still small voice was coming to me and speaking to me and through the words of Scripture. And He changed me from being a scared and um, not very confident person, to being one who started to rely on him more, to know who I was in Christ, that I was God's beloved, and that I was made in his image, and that I was worth loving. So prayer has changed me, and that's why I'm so excited about it, because God has changed me through it. You talk in your book about the idea that that many people find it challenging. Some people find it fabulous but most people kind of sit somewhere in between. How do we we leave that mediocre ground, that plateau, and ascend to the heights? How do we, we I suppose, how do we build that muscle of prayer? Well, it's, you know, we do physical training. We do physical fitness. I was at the gym today, and which is something that I definitely need to do. And we can do spiritual fitness as well. You know, we could set ourselves a challenge, not in the sense of, oh, we have to win at this challenge, but a challenge in, I'm going to commit to this. I'm going to commit for a month. I'll commit for 21 days. I'll commit for three months. 
and get a friend involved with you. Do it together. Say, let's try this out. You know, let's, okay, let's use Amy's book and try these seven different ways to pray. Do it with a small group. Just um, commit to it and ask God to increase your desire. He loves to do that. He loves to spark our desires for him. And as we pray more, he'll be increasing our desire for him even more. And it's this wonderful, um, yeah, this wonderful richness and fullness, this life that comes out and through us. It often is that first step, though, isn't it? It is that. Yes. It's that getting up off the sofa to take that first step, to take that first walk, to do that first run, to explore that, that new opportunity. All those things, it's the, the, as Tolkien said, they all the journeys start with the first step. So how do you take yourself onto that first step of prayer? I think it's just really simple to say, Lord, help me. You know, it's, it's that old saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I want to pray, help me to pray. Oh, it can't and be that simple, Amy. I mean, we're talking about prayer here. We're talking about something that will transform our experience of God. We're talking about something that will open rich vistas of God's glory in our lives. It can't be as simple as just do it, can it? What kind of a father do we have? Do we have a demanding father who says you have to do this and that, you know, A, B, and C, and then X, Y, and Z? Or do we have a parent who runs toward us as when we turn to him? We see that gorgeous picture in Jesus's parable of the prodigal son and the father who's waiting for us. He's running towards us. He's doing culturally inappropriate things, lifting his skirts and running toward us. And we're not all prodigals. We might just be a little lukewarm, but he still is rushing towards us and making it easy. I mean, prayer is a practice. We can get better at it. We can, and I hope we do exercise our, our prayer muscle. And that's why I've written this resource to help us to do that. But we also don't have to get overwhelmed and think we're doing it wrong. And I really hope people will have a sense of freedom and fun and playfulness in it. It's sometimes the way we talk about prayer part of the problem because we talk about and, and i did earlier on i talked about the discipline of prayer which you know even when i'm saying it it's putting me off do you know what i mean straight away because I, yeah. well, i've got to do the duty of prayer that we should you know live according to the rule of prayer all these sorts of things from our different traditions do kind of make it sound like it's a burden we're taking on and it can feel a burden at times i mean it can you know, the daily quiet time or the rule of life um, from a different tradition. But, you know, working out feels a burden at times too. <laughs> but if I don't do it, then I get flabby. So, you know, yes, we should keep at it. But if we also remember the relationship, remember who we're praying to, you know, it's God is not a nasty personal trainer who's slamming us when we don't do our 10 reps. Yes. And in the same way that <laughs> physical exercise produces the, the endorphins that, that encourage us to keep going. I mean, is it too much of a stretch to say that the exercise of prayer produces those faith endorphins that actually take us somewhere better? Quite often they, it does because God is so gracious. Not always, though. And I think that's where sometimes people get discouraged because Maybe as a new Christian, they had these amazing answers to prayer and they felt the Holy Spirit. They felt the presence of God. 
And then they enter a spiritual winter and God seems completely silent. And sometimes it feels like in the maturing of our faith, he might just remove himself. He doesn't remove himself from us, but we feel like he's removing himself from us so that we don't rely on the experience or the gift over the giver so that we, you know, we keep looking to God. So yes, I, I like your endorphins, but it doesn't, you know, it's not a, we're always going to sense that. And that's, that's not what we're looking for either. But God is so gracious that he gives it to us quite often. And it's like, woo! <laughs> You're listening to UCB Life Issues, talking this week to Amy Boucher-Pie. amyboucherpie.com is her website, and her book that we are basing our conversation on is called Seven Ways to Pray. It does exactly what it says on the tin. It gives us seven guidelines about prayer that we might pursue. So tell us a little bit about this. Published by SPCK, as I said, but the seven things that you highlight where do they come from and what is the the thinking behind drawing them together in the book? Well, the subtitle is Time-Tested Practices for Encountering God. And so they are all practices that have been around, some of them, for centuries and centuries. And so I've based them in some amazing people that I studied when I did um, a master's, an MA in Christian spirituality. And I got to know this whole new set of quote-unquote friends and, you know, Bernard of Clairvaux and Ignatius of Loyola and Teresa of Avila and just, and some kind of people way out there as well. Um, but these, these saints of old who learned how to pray and prayed with the Bible, prayed through the Bible, they practiced the presence of God, they learned how to hear God, they lamented, they put themselves into a gospel story and they prayed the examine, which is looking back in order to look forward. Those are the seven ways that I look at. I'm not saying they're the only seven ways, but there's seven ways that have really stood the test of time as a way of coming into God's presence. And it's important for us to realize that because, I mean, depending on our tradition, we can kind of feel a little dismissive of those prayer warriors of not just yesteryear, but of centuries ago. And yet, they were hearing from God. They were experiencing God. They were seeing transformation in their community and the miraculous outpouring and reality of God's spirit through their prayers. And it's not just the 20th or even the 21st century where God has done something new, is it? That's right. That's right. They've, you know, and they had to live through some really tough times, quite a few of them. Teresa of Avila, she she lived at the time of the Inquisition, and she was a woman. And so she was battling the authorities, and she was battling between actually hearing God and what they would call mental prayer and vocal prayer, which is what was allowed, which was speaking out set prayers. So we can learn so much about discerning the voice of God. And I know we're going to be talking about that. Um, but we can learn from these people who have traveled before us and who knew a lot, you know, mm. we don't need to dismiss them and think that because we're modern, we're a whole lot smarter than they are. 
Well, what we thought we'd do today is just give you a flavour of what is in the book and some just as a sort of little insight into some of the areas. You can find the book online and in good Christian bookshops. And as I said earlier, you can find it through Amy's own website. And if we think, first of all, about the idea, I was going to pitch at pronouncing the Latin, but my courage flew from me i decided i wouldn't risk it not least because i just ended up sounding like i was doing marlon brando in the godfather tell us about the concept of praying with and through the bible and you can go for the latin if you like okay well it's just this jargony term lectio divina and it's simply latin for sacred praying sacred reading um and Lectio Divina is a way of slowing us down. And it was, it evolved out of, I mean, well, the Jewish people would pray the Bible devotionally, and then the early Christians did. And then this developed out of the monasteries. So, you know, books were very rare back then. And so the monks would come along and they would go to the place where the Bible was, and they would take a chunk of scripture and they would work through it all day. They would mumble it. They would speak it aloud. Monasteries were known as communities of mumblers. And a monk might might be known as a buzzing bee because of the way that he would speak scripture. And so it's a four-step process, very easy of reading, reflecting, um, responding, and resting. So it's just a way to work through this scripture from our head to our hearts, to let the honey drip down deeply within us do you have to be selective in the passages that you choose i mean i would struggle to imagine that praying the genealogies are of the the some of the early books of the old testament would necessarily take us very far well that's probably true yes you need to use discernment but i mean who knows what god could reveal to you about those genealogies and maybe a woman appearing in it or, you know, a woman being the precursor to Jesus or, but yeah, you definitely need to use discernment, but so much of scripture can come alive. And so if we do push ourselves and and use some, maybe not our favorite passage, I'm sure God will bless us in and through that. Okay. So just walk us through it then. You said there are four steps. The, The first obviously is to read. Yes. So we read with expectancy and awe and respect for the voice behind the text. We read it to get to, to, uh, to, to, you know, to see what the scripture says. And then the next one is reflection. We read it again and we reflect on it and we ask God through the Holy Spirit to highlight a word or a phrase, especially that will meet us at that time of our life. And then we read it a third time. And because we, we're interacting with God, we can't help but to respond. We might praise God. We might adore him. We might give thanks. We might have a petition, um, intercession. So it's reading, reflecting, responding. And then the fourth one is probably the hardest for mm-hmm. us modern people, resting. You don't have to do anything. You don't even have to receive the still small voice from God. You just simply be and let you read it again and just rest in God's presence. And you don't, I should say, have to do the four steps in in order. You can go from one to three to two to four back to one. You know, it's it can be a really fluid kind of thing it as is, the spirit is, leads you. 
it is about creating a space, really, isn't it? To actually, exactly. rather than read and rush off, as, let's be honest, many of us do, rather than pray without taking time to think, as, again, many of us do. It is about just creating an environment that gives us pause. Exactly. Exactly. And maybe the first time when we do it, we only want to allow 10 minutes because it might feel intimidating. That's fine. We don't start running a marathon. You know, we start off doing half a mile. So yeah, take take 10, 10 minutes and then grow to 15 minutes. And then maybe you'll want to go to a half an hour. But it also doesn't have to be a set, set time. It's a way of opening ourselves up to God and to his spirit through the word that he's given us. Amy's book is called Seven Ways to Pray, and she goes through those different seven uh, elements that we might incorporate into prayer life to help us well, discern, determine what might work for us. And one of the people that you reflect on, and you mentioned her earlier on, Teresa of Avila, and, and she comes alongside this idea of hearing God. And I suppose the, the question that for many people, before we talk about how we hear God, the question for many people will be to go, can we actually hear God? I had somebody talk to me just recently in our church about how they believed that God had spoken to them and had broken into their prayer time. But the interesting thing for me was that they, they believed that this was happening, but they were almost apologetic for expressing the possibility that God might have spoken to them. And the word weird kept getting used a lot in the conversation. I mean, does he really speak to us, Amy? Well, yes, he does. I mean, look at the Bible. I think the most favorite story that people will tell is 1 Samuel 3. Samuel, a young boy in the temple, and Eli is the old priest. And again and again, God comes to Samuel and presents, you know, and, and, set, and calls him. And Samuel doesn't know that it's God. So he presents himself to Eli. And it's like three times that Eli sends him back before Eli twigs. I mean, <laughs> Eli was a priest. He should have known. It's you know? nice to know that the before leadership he... of church struggled as much then as it does now, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, so, you know, so Samuel finally did hear and he heard a message that wasn't very comfortable for Eli. Or you look at Jesus saying, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep hear his voice. My sheep hear my voice. He says that so clearly, we are God's sheep and we get it wrong. And I think maybe that's part of the issue is that there are times when we get it wrong. I get it wrong. I got it wrong. And, and I've just told some of the stories in the book of getting it wrong. And that made me very afraid to hear God again. Yes. Because I thought God said, move, you know, you're going to move. You're going half, halfway across the country. You're going to marry this guy. You'll work for these people. And it all fell through. So after that, I'm like, oh, my goodness, what am I basing my life on? This is ridiculous. I'm not going to hear God anymore. Um, so it was, took me weeks and months. And the thing about that, of getting it so wrong, is it taught me better how to discern and how to test and how to use wisdom and how to set, you know, how to find a more mature Christian than I was and to weigh these things out. Because it has to be acknowledged that it is very easy to hear 
our deepest desires, hopes, aspirations, and assign them a divine voice. And of course, critics, um, even within the church and even within Christianity, critics are of the, the idea of hearing God's voice will say simply that all you're doing is channeling your inner desires. All you're doing is, is, is actually hearing your own prayers. How do we discern the difference between my longing for a comfortable life or whatever, and God's promise of blessings untold. Well, I think that's the hardest thing is to distinguish between when is it God and when is it our desires. And God does spark our desires into life. Um, and that's why when, when I thought that God was telling me I was going to marry somebody, I mean, that should have been a red flag from the start because it was so rooted in my own desires. And so I had so much less objectivity when it came to that. But I think though we can get it wrong, it's just, it, it goes back to testing, to waiting. If we think God has said something like, you know, you're going to have a child or you're going to get married or one of these kind of things, you're going to, you know, publish a book and it's going to be a bestseller. Well, he probably wouldn't say that. But um, <laughs> one of these things really close to our heart, we hold it tenderly and maybe we keep silent about it. Oh, we write yeah. it down and then we put it in a box and we put it away. And if it comes true in a year, 10 years, whatever, then then we had, did hear God. But, you know, Maybe we didn't, but I also don't think it's a bad thing for us to get in touch with our desires. I really don't think so. And I think God teaches us more obviously about himself when we pray, but he also teaches us about ourselves too. To understand where we're coming from, to understand what drives us, to understand what our core values and our core beliefs are, and all those things that well-being tells us it's important to connect with. Actually, prayer gives us the opportunity to open that bottle, pour out the contents, and take a good long look and sniff at it and determine whether it's wholesome and whether it's good for us. Definitely. I mean, God was there first before modern psychology. God's always there first, isn't it? Yeah. He's got the answers. He's got the way for us to thrive. And again, it goes back to how do we see God? Is he a loving father? Is he somebody who wants the best for us? Do we believe that deep down? So let's talk a little bit about Teresa of Avila then and the, the why she was such an example to you about finding discernment and to know that you're hearing God. She was, she, I feel like she's a friend and I can't wait in one sense to get to heaven to get to know her. She is, she was a real character and she kind of went way out there with mystical stuff in her early years. You know, there are stories of her levitating and that kind of stuff, which we would raise our eyebrows at, of course. But what I love is that through her long relationship with God, and she had a very chatty conversation with him quite often going back and forth. Uh, intimate friends, but she talks in her interior castle of these different mansions, and we won't get too much into that, but the highest level of union with God is not anything about experience. It's not about levitation. It's not about, you know, mystical this and that. It's just 
really comes down to a deep partnership and friendship and intimacy and um, Christ living in us through the Spirit. That's what her highest thing is. And I think, so somebody like Teresa would get a bad rap because of the early, you know, levitating kind of stuff. Whereas in her maturity, and she would tell the nuns in her care, you know, stop looking after experience, hon. You know, you can't just focus on God and your relationship with him and read the word and submit to the authorities. So she's a fascinating character. But once again, though, is it really that easy? You know, in the same way that starting to praise, believing that God wants this relationship or friendship with us and taking the first step. I mean, is it really that easy that it is just that it comes down to our understanding that God wants this? He wants to talk to us. He wants to chat with us. He wants us to kick off our shoes and settle back in front of the fire with him and have a a big mug of cocoa and, and explore the day. I mean, those sorts of images, that sort of idea, it does seem too simple. It does seem too accessible. But why? Why do we make it so hard? Why can't we accept that he wants this close relationship with us? And I'm not saying, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we can't go deeper and that we can't learn more and we can't learn new practices. We can. But at the end of the day, yes, why can't it be that simple? Yeah, well, 2,000 years of church perhaps trying to exert control (laughs) over people might have something to do with that because there has been a history, hasn't there, of pushing people to a dependency on the institution and the procedures rather than the personal experience. Well, that's right, and that's where Teresa, I found her so helpful because she did have to deal with the authorities, and they would say to her, you can't do this, you know, this mental prayer. This is dangerous, and she got to the point where she would say, I want to respect the authorities and bow down to them, but I am not going to give up hearing from Jesus because he's the authority, so she really did over many, many years, and it wasn't an easy thing, but she had to learn how to depend on God and His voice and discern when when God was speaking. So that's why I think she's such a wonderful example as well. You're listening to UCB Life Issues. I'm Paul Hammond speaking to Amy Boucher-Pie. AmyBoucherPie.com is her website. And as I said earlier on, Boucher-Pie is spelled B-O-U-C-H-E-R-P-Y-E. And you can find out all about Amy's book, Seven Ways to Pray, and the the different things she lays out for us in terms of encouraging us to to recognize the accessibility of prayer, to recognize the accessibility of praying through God's Word, recognize the accessibility of hearing God's voice and hearing Jesus' voice in our lives. And also, one of the other things, and we can't go through them all today, so we have just kind of cherry-picked the ones that jumped out at us, but perhaps particularly relevant in this current age, you talk about lament. Now, I thought, Amy, that prayer was all about faith and victory and proclamation of that which is better than it might come to pass. Lament... Where does that sit in the constellation of prayer? Well, I think it's a very important part of prayer that we might miss out because we we know that we have a good God, a good Father. So why would we feel able to share our complaints, our protests, our 
you know, our belly aches with God, but it's incredibly biblical. I mean, look, there's an Old Testament book called Lamentations, which is a very tightly, um, tightly wound, tightly sourced. Oh, sorry. That's what is it? A tightly what? There's an Old Testament book called Lamentations, which contains these amazing poems of lament. The Psalms, 45% of the Psalms are lament. Or look at the book of Job. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world which is not as God intended it. And so we have disease and death and we have disappointment and betrayal and all these things where life is so hard. And God wants us to be honest with him. He wants us to share what we're feeling. He doesn't want us to bottle it up, but we can lament. We can bring our sadness and our pain to him. He invites us to. He wants to hear it. And is there a difference between the the concept of lament in prayer and simply moaning? Because my memory, of, especially of the Old Testament and the Israelites coming out of Egypt and they're wandering around the wilderness and it talks about them murmuring and moaning and, and God's not overly happy with that. Moses wasn't too chuffed either. But I wonder if we need to recognise that lament is not just me kicking off because I'm irritated or frustrated. There's a deeper thing to this. Definitely. And we can look at a fourfold pattern in the Psalms to see how we can move from just the belly aching. The four, the four different steps are addressed. So we address God. We come to God and we say, hey, Lord, I'm not happy. And then the next one is complaint. You share what's wrong. Lay it out. Be honest. And then the third one is request. You ask God to help. And I think the last step that we see, especially like in Psalm 22 and in so many of the Psalms, is expression of trust. Yes, yes. Toward the end of the Psalm, the psalmist, David or whoever, says, I will trust in you. Now, maybe he's educating his emotions. You know, maybe he's having to tell himself, I'm going to trust in you, but I will trust in you because you are a good God. So if you follow that pattern, you can get all the angsty stuff out, but then you also ask God to help and you say, you know, I'm going to trust in you. Because it is a developing process, isn't it, to learn exactly what it is we feel in those moments and to learn the honesty of that. Because you, as you say, one of the elements of this is to come to God, lay it out to him, be honest to him honest with him about how we feel. Sometimes the thing that gets in the way is our unwillingness to be honest with ourselves about how we feel and why we feel it. That's so true. That's so true. And I start that chapter off talking about some very hard things. When I was only 19, one of my best friends died and then another friend died six months later. And then my beloved grandfather died seven months later. And I just... I just went and worked and worked and worked. I was at university, so I did my university work, and then I had a part-time job. And in the summers, I worked six days a week, 12 hours a day. And it was just to escape the pain. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to give it to God because it hurt too much. But if only if I had learned how to lament, he would have taken some of that pain from me, and I would have been able to share it out instead of bottling it up and you know, just kind of being a numb robot during those months. And what does it do when we take on board 
the thought of lament in prayer. What does it do for those outside of our sphere as well? Because it's very easy to see how that, and your example there, it applies very personally. It would have changed your perspective. It would have have given you the opportunity to connect with God's plan and purpose in your life at that time. And that would have had a liberating effect for you. But looking at what's happened around the world over the last couple of years, a lot of Christians have been talking about the importance of lamenting before God with this. But does it really make a difference on a local, a national, a global scale if I follow the pattern of lament for something as big as a, a pandemic? Well, why wouldn't it? I mean, again, it goes back to how we view God. As we, If we would come together as a church, our local church, and lament together, we just don't know how God will answer those prayers. We don't also know how praying those prayers will change us, how we will be more aware of the needs of others in our community, how we might be turning more outward facing, um, how we might stop just gazing at our own navels and our own agendas and things. So I don't know how God will answer that, but I really believe that he can do amazing things when we do come together as a group and have a collective lament. When you started to draw together this book and you identified these seven patterns of prayer that would perhaps create that space for us to simply catch our breath and realize that prayer is something for us, how did you envisage that making a difference for those who will read it? I suppose what makes my reading of your book a success a and a cheap I'll just leave it there. What makes the reading of your my reading of your book a success? It's a success if you encounter God. That is my deepest, deepest prayer and hope. That's it grew out of years of leading retreats and the joy of hearing people encounter God. The amazing stories after I lead. I led many of these prayer exercises in the book with groups. And that's my favorite thing to do is to hear from people, to share the way that they encounter God. So the success for me is the transformation, the change that God brings as we encounter him through prayer. You've been listening to UCB Life Issues, available as a podcast on UCB Player or wherever you download yours. Charles Spurgeon said, to pray is to enter the treasure house of God and to gather riches out of an inexhaustible storehouse. Prayer is, to quote Amy's book, an adventure with God. Let's be honest, as she said today, it's not an easy fix. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's not even a path to perpetual blessing and no hardship. But a life of prayer that communes, savours, surrenders and listens as well as asks is the portal, the wardrobe, if you like, through which we are transported to a land and life of richness and hope and a light that never fails. Amy's book is called Seven Ways to Pray. You can find out more by having a look at amyboucherpie.com. Amy, it's always a pleasure to have you on the programme. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you, Paul. I so enjoy being with you. Thank you. 
I'm Paul Hammond. Join me next week for another Life Issues and a thought to ponder on as we go from C.S. Lewis. For most of us, he said, the prayer in Gethsemane is the only model. Removing mountains can wait. Ta-da!